We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Paul Asplund, and I'm an alcoholic. And my sobriety date is April 13th of 1988. Uh, It's late March right now. And about this time of year, uh, 34 years ago, I woke up on a pile of bubble pack and packing blankets that I had made into a bed uh, I was sleeping in the basement of an empty house in the western suburbs of Minneapolis. It's a really rough place to be unhoused. And this is a long time ago. So it's kind of a different situation. I was just a drunk who ran out of all of his options. Oh, none of my friends would have me around or give me a place to stay any longer. And I thought I had a plan. I mean, I was in bad shape I, I, sleeping on a pile of plastic and polyester. I was sweaty. I uh, only had the clothes that I was wearing and I was was sleeping in them. And I was sweaty and I smelled bad and I was unshowered. And uh, during the coldest times, the gas was still on in this house. So I would turn the oven on for heat in the kitchen and I'd sleep in front of the oven but I was afraid I was going to suffocate, so I'd open a window, and so I had cold air on one side, warm air on the other. And I stayed like this for a few months. I had been offered a chance to get sober, and I said no. I had been going to meetings since I was 17 years old. I went to my first meeting in a little hometown. My, my hometown was called Brainerd. It's up in the middle of Minnesota. And uh, 17 years old, I knew something was wrong. And I went to the, uh, it wasn't an Alano club then, there is now, but the only meetings in town were upstairs from the John M. By suit company where you could go. In fact, I had my very first suit from John M. By. But you walked up this long, long flight of stairs in this old 1800s building. I was walking up and, um, and on the left, there was a woman standing there. And she was, I mean, it was like a denim dress with floral top and floral puffy sleeves. And she, her hair was done and she looked bright and shiny and there was lights behind her and there were people talking. And I started walking toward her and she said, oh no, dear, you must want the AA meeting. And she turned me around to the other side of the hall where there was a dimly lit room like a hundred watt light bulb hanging on a braided cord in the middle of this room and a bunch of old guys sitting around and uh, in old broken down recliners and there were old bus seats, you know, the orange, yellow, and brown plastic fiberglass bus seats were sitting around the room, kind of scattered around. There was a podium. There was a little AA sign on the podium and all of them were old. They were in dirty t-shirts and they had tobacco stained fingers and... It just wasn't what I wanted, right? I sat down, and they were very happy to have a newcomer. I sat down and listened, uh, and I knew this wasn't for me. And I didn't go back to another meeting until I was in my early 20s. And it was um, 
I just figured out in, in all the time and all the meetings that I went to, I figured out that I wasn't an alcoholic, that I was bipolar or I was depressed or it's because I've been sexually abused or, you know, anything but just being an alcoholic. So when the county, Hennepin County, offered me a chance to go to a treatment center, I said no. And they sweetened the deal. And they um, they cut off my well they didn't sweep it they cut off my general assistance and my food stamps, and this was my last lifeline. I was no longer able to work. Nobody would employ me. I I was uh, hustling for a while, but I was far beyond being able to do that. And I was running drugs for a friend of mine, and you know I wasn't reliable enough to do that anymore, and had lost my car, and there were just all these things that. You know, I, I just wasn't able to get any income anymore. So these general assistance and food stamps were keeping me going. And so I thought on that March morning that I would call the guy and I would tell him that I would go into treatment and then I would get my food stamps and my general assistance back. And then I could continue drinking like I like to drink, like I like to use cocaine. Cocaine had just arrived on the scene in those days in the mid 80s. And it was amazing. It allowed me to drink sometimes for days. So I called the guy and told him that I would go to treatment and somewhere, this was mid-April now, and uh, my sobriety date, April 13th, I probably was in treatment within three or four days of that. I stopped drinking for whatever reason. I may have been out of money. I just don't remember. And I, I set that sobriety date in kind of a fog, So, but it's my sobriety date. But I showed up at this treatment center, Park Avenue Center, and I was struck sober. I didn't want to get sober. I didn't plan to get sober. I saw no benefit in it. I didn't believe you guys. I didn't believe I belonged here. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought I had much bigger mental health issues. In fact, at one point, I was taking other people's lithium and other people's drugs uh, to treat myself. So I was really crazy. And um, and in this little place with 15 other people, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous hit me and it stuck. And I walked out of there, I don't know, was it 12 weeks later, something like that? And I didn't know what to do. I, up until this point, just to roll back a little bit, this was the mid 80s, right? And the AIDS crisis was in full, full force. I'd been a hustler. Uh, my boyfriend, Marty, had been one of the very first people to die from what they called grid in those days. And I was, for, for to everyone, including me, I was a dead man walking. I was getting tested every six months. I was still having unsafe sex. And... I was testing negative and expecting to test positive and expecting to test positive. And I never made any plans. I never went to college. I didn't expect to live. I just didn't plan for anything. And I didn't die. And I didn't get sick. And it took me years to come to some peace with that because I saw a lot of people who I loved and admired and were great examples to me die and I couldn't figure out why I was spared and they were gone. So, uh, and how it affected AA, I was going to the uh, gay AA meetings at the time and what happened is the entire generation of people who 
would carry the message to us newcomers was gone. And all of the newcomers were getting sick and people were panicked. And the meetings themselves were more about people talking about their uh, status uh, with HIV than they were about sobriety. And I couldn't get sober there. So this was kind of the, the background of all the meetings that I did go to that I was convinced weren't the answer for me. And probably at that point, they they weren't. But who knows, uh, you know, so we say we can get sober regardless of anyone. So many years later, I uh, get sober and I refuse to go to meetings. At about four and a half months of sobriety, I'm out of my mind. I am going to either kill myself or I'm going to drink again. And instead of doing either of those things, I walked back into that treatment center and I talked to my counselor. His name was Joe. You know, I think we've all had a Joe in our lives, right? He was a Vietnam vet, bald on top with a ponytail, Harley bike rider, big heavy set guy, loud voice, very sweet. And I went into Joe and I told him what was going on. And he said, let me read you the report that I sent back to the county after you left here. And he pulled out my file and he read something. And I, I'm paraphrasing. It's been a while, but basically chronically dishonest, unable to maintain sobriety. And I expect that he will continue to be a drain on the county's resources for the rest of his foreshortened life. And that maybe that was my moment of clarity. It was certainly a moment of despair. Uh, certainly, this is a man who I knew loved me. In every way that I understood love at the time, I knew he loved me. He took actions to help me. And this was his professional opinion of me, that I was not going to make it and that I was going to die from this disease. And I was stricken and he could see it. And he said, I tell you what, I'm going to send you to some meetings that I think will help you out. And he directed me to some meetings up in Northeast Minneapolis, which is a place that I normally wouldn't have gone. It's kind of a tough working class area and not much for me up there other than was it Kozlak's Steakhouse. And um, I went to these meetings and there were Harley bikers and garbage collectors and psychiatric patients and a couple of, of homemakers and a couple of salespeople. And they loved me until I got sober. I literally mean that they changed my life because they accepted me as I was. I, I didn't come out to anybody uh, officially because at the time, if you did come out, if I told anybody that I was gay in a straight meeting, I would have been shown the door. There was still too much fear around and prejudice around HIV and AIDS. So I didn't tell anybody. And uh, one night, Roger, this amazing, amazing guy, Harley Biker, funny, loud, you know, he's just a great guy. He turned to me and he said, are you bisexual? And I, you know, I laughed. I was like, <laughs> I had no idea what to say, right? I'd been caught. And, uh, and I didn't say anything. And he said, well, it doesn't matter. We still love you. And that was really the beginning of me learning to be an alcoholic among alcoholics and, uh, and to feel at home in a meeting. And so I went to that meeting for the first, maybe the first year. And I didn't really do anything 
I mean, I wasn't really working the steps. I had three sponsors. Um, this is why maybe the core of the problem. I had three sponsors and they were all lovely and they were all trying to help me. But I was smart enough that if I didn't get the answer I wanted from one, I would go to the other. And really, I was running my own program and I was running myself into the ground. Right. And one of these people, uh, her name was Sue. She was coming down to the uh, soup kitchen where I would occasionally eat. Sharing and Caring Hands was the place. And she was putting on meetings. So I got to know Sue there, and she would bring in these donuts. Oh, my God. And she would go to the... Uh, they were ready for the trash, right? These were three- or four-day-old donuts that all the all the frosting had slid off, you know, and was at the, on the side, and they were on little rubbery. And she would bring a huge box of those, and... We'd go downstairs, sharing and carrying hands, and eat these rubbery old donuts with coffee. And they were so good. They were so sugary and amazing. And they were so good. And she said, uh, I will take you to 10 meetings a week. And I didn't have anything else to do. I was, you know, fine. And, and Sue was a lovely, wonderful person, right? She drove this old Chevy Nova. And she was in the clothing business. So the back of the car was full of clothes, sample clothes, right? And the front seat, she was tiny, and the front seat was pushed all the way forward. And Sue always had one false eyelash that was coming off. And she was very, very small. And she literally was one of those who was looking between the steering wheel and the dashboard as she's, you know, up. And she drove like a maniac. And we would arrive at these meetings with you know five minutes to spare and i was going to five meetings a week at sharing and caring hands during the day and then she took me to five meetings a week at night at one of these meetings she pointed across the room and said go ask that guy to be your sponsor you need him and he was nothing that i would ever have chosen by looking at him particularly he was old he was actually younger than i am now which i think is funny he was old he had a gin blossom nose he had um bad taste in clothing he was wearing a, a matching track suit one of those top and bottom and it was like mauve and teal and white nylon kind of a thing and he had huge new balance shoes on and he just he he was wearing one of those driving caps you know with a little snap in the front and there's just nothing nothing that i would have as particularly looking at it as a, a hustler looking for a mark right not the guy i would have chosen so uh, I went up and asked him to sponsor me. And he said, talk to him at the break, because it was right before the meeting. And so I went, talk to him at the break. And, and uh, he said, I don't care what you think. I don't care how you feel. This is not a debating society. I'm going to ask you to do things that you don't want to do, and I'll expect you to do them. We're not going to become friends. Don't try and start a conversation with me. But I promise you that if you do exactly what I tell you to do, you'll never need to take another drink. Now, in all the meetings that I had gone to, nobody had ever made me a promise like that. And I believed him. He was sincere. He meant what he was saying. And, um, and he was my sponsor for the first 23 years of my sobriety. Now, he took me through all the steps and watched me as I blossomed in this uh, in this fellowship, you know, as I, I got a job as a night security guard at a hotel. It was my first legit job in a long time. My only qualification being that I'm 6'2 and 300 pounds. And um, 
I worked 11 to 7s, and I would get up at 6 o'clock and have something to eat, and I'd go to the meeting at 7.30. I'd show up a little bit early, and I'd set up the chairs, or I'd break down the chairs, or make the coffee, or whatever my commitment happened to be. And I would attend the meeting, and then I would hang out for a little fellowship afterwards, which we always did. And then I would go and work my shift, 11 to 7, go home in the mornings, sleep half a day. I um, I was still broke, and I had a little one-bedroom apartment. One of the guys who I had gone to treatment with managed an apartment building in uh, it's called Stephen Square, kind of a poor part of Minneapolis. And he fudged the paperwork. He approved me getting a one-bedroom apartment, which I just couldn't afford. And um, one night, my sponsor walked up to me, and he said, Paul, this is Mike. He's your new roommate. He's moving in tonight. And uh, Mike was this you know, Mike was from North Carolina. He was a big North Carolina Southerner. I had no idea what we had in common. He was straight. It was just, you know, I gave him the bedroom and I slept in the living room and we both stayed sober and we both worked. We both got our lives together. And I went through founding or being one of the founding people for seven meetings. So we had seven days a week. and. I became secretary of every one of those meetings over the course of time, right? And I moved up job-wise. I went from being the, the security guard to the front desk. And it was one of those, you know, AA stories. I was in a meeting and this guy came up to me and said, hey, you look like you're about my size. I just retired from work and I want to get rid of all my clothes. Do you need any clothing? I said, sure. So I took the bus out to where he lived in the western suburbs in St. Louis Park and met him and went into his nice condo. And uh, he took me into uh, uh, his bedroom and he opened up the sliding door and it was all Brooks Brothers suits and Brooks Brothers chinos and Brooks Brothers shirts and Brooks Brothers ties and Brooks Brothers shoes and everything fit me. And I jammed all of these clothes into big black garbage bags because that's all i had right oh big black garbage bags and i took the bus back to my house and all of a sudden i was you know dressed like a stockbroker so i would uh i would get done with my shift in the morning seven o'clock and i'd switch into my kind of stockbrokery clothes because i like nice clothes and the gm of the hotel said what's what's his day job what does what does he go to do after he does this and nobody knew so he said, why doesn't he work with us? And he gave me a job at the front desk. And a few, let's say a year later, he gave me a job managing the restaurant there. And because I had done some coffee shop management in the past, and he wasn't a very, anyway, he should not have given me that job. I was not very good at it. But five years later, I was an executive at Hilton. And that's, I, it's, you know, I can't explain the path. That happened. My sponsor would yell at me if I was, you know, any less than 15 minutes early to a meeting. And he told me the same thing for work. You're 15 minutes early. You never ask for a raise. You stay a little bit late. You make sure that everybody around you has got what they need. And you'll be the favorite employee. I, I thought, I'm, you know, never ask for a raise. I, I, I've always believed that I should be the president of every organization that I've worked for. So we had... Let me roll back a little bit to talk about 
when I first figured out that I was never going to be able to figure AA out. It was in my first year of sobriety. I went to another meeting that was closed. I was really having a rough time. And I went to another meeting. It was a Friday night speaker meeting. And I showed up late and I sat in the back row. And it was a little bit dark inside of there, but there was a light up on the stage on the podium. And they had two 10-minute speakers and then a little break. And uh, I got my coffee and sat back down. And the main speaker was a friend of mine. And not only a friend, but the man who had fired me from a job many years earlier. I had been the uh, the front door day manager of a fancy French restaurant. And he was one of the execs. And I was embezzling from them. You know, stupid, like, like I had figured out how to do this. Um, taking cash. Um, I had a very expensive cocaine habit at the time. And I liked nice things. And I wasn't making enough money. So I decided to steal from my employer. And he was one of the people who confronted me and walked me to the door and fired me. And the way he told the story is after doing that, he went downstairs to clean up my locker and he found my big book. And he read the big book. And from that day forward, he'd never had another drink. Now, when he told that story, I was just, I mean, this was five years. He was five years sober. I was, I, you know, I always want to try and figure out how things work, right? And I knew there was something going on here that I would, I couldn't understand. It was not a coincidence that this happened. At this time in my life, I would have told you I was an atheist as probably at best an agnostic because I really didn't care. I grew up religious, but I was kicked out of the church I grew up in when I came out at 17 and kind of launched my career. I was soon out of my parents' house after that, and, and uh, I was really resentful toward God and that whole thing. So, uh, I, you know, trying to figure out how finding that book in my locker after firing me would inspire him uh, who i mean you can't there's no way that you can draw a straight line from the cause to the effect of that right this is i was just baffled by this and the best part is that i have remained baffled by this program for my entire sobriety i i think it's kind of the best thing going uh, for, for not only for alcoholics i think a lot of other people benefit from the the path that we walk together in this fellowship but um i went up and talked to him afterward and told him i was newly sober and he gave me a hug and i was just i was blown away devastated i started crying i was like i moved forward into this business you know I, after i left the hotel i took over managing some more coffee shops and one of them was in a office building in Minneapolis. And, you know, we'd show up for work every morning at five o'clock and I hired all sober people. So we had a really fun, crazy crew. We were all young. We were having a great time. And every day at 630, the doors would open. There was a lineup. You know, we knew everybody's drinks. We knew everybody's names. We would just do everything and we'd have music playing and we'd be laughing and joking. And it was a great time. 
And one day, four of my customers were regulars, sat down, you know, at a table instead of leaving, and they waited for the whole crowd to dissipate. And they came up to me and they said, you know, we've been watching you for a year, and we would like to offer you a job. And they offered me an executive position at Hilton, the new Hilton they had just built down the street, managing 85 people and <laughs> with an assistant and an office. And, you know, and I was a barista. I was a whatever, a manager barista at a Pam Sherman's bakery. I, I get, they should not have given me the job. I was not good at it. But I was blown away that that opportunity came to me. So I moved down the street and wore those fancy stockbroker clothes for a real job where they actually made a difference. I essentially moved into the hotel and worked. My crew worked 24 hours a day. So I would sleep a few hours, work a few hours, sleep a few hours. And I stopped going to a lot of meetings because um, of my work schedule. But I was able to um, able to go to uh, my home group, my Thursday night Central Pacific group. And uh, a couple of years after that, I had left the food business and decided that I, I wanted to try something different. I didn't exactly know what it was, but I knew that I was burned out. I left my job and I, for four months, I applied for, you know, this when you used to have to circle the job in the paper and then type up your, your letter and, and paperclip your resume to it and then put it in an envelope and a stamp on it and then send it off. That's how we applied for jobs in the olden days, kids. <laughs> I applied for jobs until one o'clock. And then at one o'clock, I walked down to the lake near where I lived and I sat until meeting time and I you know, read a book or did whatever. And four months into that, uh, some friends of mine had a baby and they asked me to help with their, their job business. And I babysat their daughter for a couple hours a day. And a couple of years after that, I was their top salesperson and and uh, I was doing computer training, and I taught myself everything about computers that I could from those little videos that we were selling. And I went out to dinner one night with some friends of theirs. I was ready to move on again. You know, I was I, I was ticking off the time sober. I had been secretary of all these meetings. I was starting to get hungry for other stuff. I was not financially very successful. A lot of my peers in AA came you know, they left and went and, and made millions of dollars and bought houses in Vail and did all these things. And I, I worked in restaurants and computer sales, training sales, and I just wasn't doing very well. And one night uh, we went out to dinner and introduced me to some friends. And he was a, um, Tom Vagley is his name. He was a producer for public radio. And I asked him a bunch of questions because I'd known the name and I've been listening to public radio since I was a kid. And he offered me a job. And it was my first production job. And I worked when we we turned Star Wars into a radio series. I was the assistant, his assistant on that. And it launched me into a whole new thing. Sobriety was amazing. I really benefited from the fellowship, especially. I was a bit of a loner. Always thought I was different, you know, as we do. And it was an immense stag group that, I learned that I a lot of these guys were sicker than me. And when I did my fifth step with my sponsor, I came out to him and I told him all about the hustling and all the all the crimes and all the stuff I had done. And he said, one day your deepest, darkest secrets will become the most powerful tools you have to help people in AA. And those were nice words, right? Those are nice words to hear. 
and actually they're printed somewhere in the book. I couldn't tell you. I'm not much of a, a, a book thumper. They didn't. I didn't fully understand that for many, many, many years. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. So my sobriety went rocking along. I was doing great. Uh, I was making commercials and music videos. I was production managing uh, at this point. And, and uh, I went from working at public radio and doing a food show on public radio to moving over to the video and film world. And I was getting successful and getting a little bit of money in my pocket. And I got pulled in on this film that I was shooting in Minnesota. And a friend of mine had been hired to manage the, the production office, and she'd had to leave, so they hired me on. And I got on with the director, and a few months later, I was living in Los Angeles and working on Xena and Hercules and Young Hercules and all of these things. I left behind my house, my boyfriend at the time, my dog, my poor dog, and my cat. And I drove out to Los Angeles to get settled. I started to become less and less focused on sobriety and more focused on my work. And at some point, uh, I left production and I, I was doing a startup, a mental health startup. My sponsor, I was going to the Pacific Group. I didn't like the Pacific Group. I just, I, you know, I liked Clancy in Minnesota. Clancy was from Wisconsin and his grandniece was one of my um, bike riding, bike, you know, motorcycle riding friends and she was lovely and wonderful. So when Clancy came to visit us, he was crazy Uncle Clancy. Uh, but in L.A., Clancy was, you know, Clancy eye from up in the sky. And rest his soul, he passed away of COVID earlier, or a couple, that's gosh, two years ago now, geez. But um, I didn't like the meetings, and my sponsor said, look, just, you know, you're getting busy with work. Call me every week. Check in. You don't need to go to meetings. You've got a lot of stuff going on. And I agreed. And so I was 15 years sober. And I called him, and then I called him every couple of weeks, and then I called him every month, and then I just quit calling. And I became my higher power, or my job became my higher power, and I was running my own program and doing my own thing. In the midst of this, about three, three years in, I got a call. My dad had always been a heavy drinker, and my sister said, look, we really need you. He's gone. You know, my mom had died and my dad had, had really gone off the deep end. So I flew home. I ended up taking six firearms from him. He threatened to kill me a couple of times. Um, gun to my chest kind of thing. And, and three o'clock in the morning, I dropped all the guns off at the police station in Brainerd. And, and I drove back to Minneapolis and got on a plane and flew back. And I knew that that was the last time I was ever going to see my dad. I came to the, the to accept that he was going to die drunk, and that um, for years he'd been trying to stop. And it was, as soon as long as I'd been sober, he'd always been calling me and saying, "I'm going to get this monkey off my back." Never happened. And uh, three years later, I get a phone call, and he says, uh, "He says, hey Paul, it's your dad. I just want to let you know that I'm sober." And um, I'm doing okay. And I said, oh, really? What's your sobriety date? He said, April 13th. And I said, fuck you. You're lying again. And I hung up the phone. Because April 13th is my sobriety date. Right? And I'm like, they just pulled the first number out of his head that, that he knew. And I called my sister and said, look, 
you know, dad's at it again. He's calling me and I, what's going on? And she said, yeah, that, you know, that date sounds about right. Now I'm not going to claim. I don't know. I don't know if it was exactly on my 20th sobriety birthday or sometime around there, you know, say within a week, either side, my dad got sober and my life, my relationship with my dad, uh, I got married. We had gay marriage. I met this lovely guy and I got married to him and, and uh, I had this startup and we had quadrupled our valuation and our, you know, we, we were just doing everything was going, going great. Talking with my dad, talking about sobriety. He was, he became the dad I always dreamed of having. And we would talk two, three times a week about just about anything. And I was making money and I was had stock options and I was going to be a millionaire and, and uh, I was in love and, you know, everything, but not AA. And this 2008 happened. My company went bankrupt. I was the last employee there. I was the, like uh, the manager, general manager. And my, husband at the time said, hey, I've met somebody else and fallen in love, and I know you've been busy with work, but I'm going to leave, and I'm sorry. And he left. And then in September of 2009, my dad died. And he just lay down for a nap, never woke up. And everything that I had put before AA was gone. It probably happened over a nine-month, ten-month period. Everything that I had put before AA was gone. And I was on my knees, devastated. I, you know, I just didn't have any more answers. And thank God, somebody I recently called it smart feet. I don't know if they were smart, but they were habituated to going to meetings, right? I had gone to so many meetings. I've been told to go to meetings, never miss your meetings, show up on time, always have a commitment, always do, right? So I found a meeting that was within walking distance of my house in Westwood in, in Los Angeles. And I, I went over there. It was a Thursday night men's group. And I walked in and I didn't know anybody there. And uh, I listened to these guys and I didn't get chosen to share that night. Uh, they, you know, I raised my hand as a newcomer and introduced myself. And a few months later, um, I got a sponsor there. I had a real hard time at that age, that time of my sobriety, accepting that I needed another sponsor. Oh, huh. skipped over the fact that my sponsor also died during that period. Um, so I really was adrift, right? Really, really adrift. This is still my home group, this Thursday night group, and those guys have saved my life. And I found out that that is a meeting that is kind of where everybody comes in is either a newcomer or somebody who is absolutely kind of run aground in their sobriety. We deal with the bedevilments, which if you don't know what the bedevilments are, I invite you to, to grab that part of the book. I think it's page 52. Again, I'm not a book banger, but, but um, we work on the bedevilments, which are the things that continue to, to devil us as we get sober. And my life has righted itself. You know, it's not been without ups and downs. Everything, I'll tell you, I'm the first one to tell you I'm a nice guy, right? 
I'm also the first one to tell you that I've been divorced three times. So, and I'm about to get married again. I, I guess I believe in marriage. First time was to a woman. She said it didn't really count. Second time was, you know, to that guy who fell in love with somebody else. Third time really devastated me because I was crazy in love with this guy. And I was screwing up. You know, um, I was not taking, I was not being a good sober person in a relationship. I wasn't drinking, but I was uh, taking advantage of of him and this open relationship and, and uh, not treating him well. And uh, in that time, so I moved to San Francisco at some point. I kind of retired, I guess. I wrote a bunch of screenplays. You know, I was in L.A., so it's what we do. We write screenplays. I wrote like a dozen screenplays. I wrote a children's book. Uh, I worked on some television shows. Um, none of it ever took, went anywhere. My partner and I started a branding company, and we were very successful writing headlines and doing branding for for companies. It was great, and we we lived around the world. We Germany and in Berlin and in Amsterdam and in Singapore. And we had a grand time. We were just first class, everything all over the place and having a wonderful time. And I was going to meetings and all of these different countries and sponsoring guys. It was just, it was just amazing, but I was, it, it was destined to end. And when it ended, I came back to LA and in San Francisco, I was wondering what, um, what to do with my life. Kind of funny. I was decided to drive for Uber so I'd get to know the city a little better. And then I read one morning about this crazy lady who was putting, uh, taking out muni buses and turning them into showers. And she was putting them out on the street for people who were unhoused to get a shower. And she said, it's not about the shower. It's about the dignity. And I had my first whatever blinding light experience in sobriety i'm of the you know everything that i've done spiritually has been of the educational variety i am a slow learner uh, i am not a good study you know i i i i'm great in the first three months uh but after that you know i kind of trail off and um i read about this and i and it I wrote to her and I said, look, I'm the guy who took a shower this morning, 25 years later, and here's my story. And I told her, and she called me up within an hour, and she said, can we meet for coffee tomorrow? And by the time that coffee ended, I was on the board of her nonprofit. And I've stayed in that business and that world ever since. And I've really found, you know, if there's a calling, if you believe in that kind of stuff, I've really found, I think, what I was called to do. And I still work out on the streets with people uh, who are uh, struggling to get clean and get housed again. And I, I, I don't say that it's, it, this is not, it's not part of my, uh, people t tend to say, oh, that's amazing. You are amazing. You do amazing work. And I always rebuff this and say, no, I am not amazing. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. And this amazing work found me. And I was smart enough to keep doing it. I have developed, realized maybe, maybe this is something you all know. And I just, it just occurred to me when, if on the day that I got sober, if you had asked me to list everything I wanted in my life, I would have, you know, written down money, cars, uh, would have been thinner, <laughs> uh, recognition, fame, popularity, uh, artwork. 
you know, all the, all the things that were the external trappings of success. I would have written that down. And I would have surpassed that list. I think I did surpass that that kind of thinking early in my sobriety. And I got a life that was so much better than anything I could envision. Right? I did not know people could live the way I live today, which is I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I sponsor people. I have a sponsor. I have commitments. I do good work. I pay my bills. Oh, my God. I pay my bills mostly on time. But I pay my bills. And I don't spend more money than I make. And, I, you know, and I go to AA and I have an amazing fellowship and friends. And, and who, at 26 years old, I was not interested in, I guess, what I have now. Maybe, maybe I just wouldn't have been able to understand it. It's beyond my understanding. And it occurred to me actually just a few weeks ago that I'm not living my dream. I'm living my higher power's dream for me. And that was a heavy revelation for me. Not heavy, necessarily. It, it prompted a lot of thinking about, okay, so what is my relationship with this life that I have? And I have a really good life. I just have, I have a really, really good life. And what I understand today is that this life, this dream is a gift. It's my higher power's vision for me. And I am just the steward. This is not my life. This is my higher power's life for me. I am responsible for taking care of it. I am responsible for doing with it what he asked me or she asked me or they asked me to do. Um, I am I am responsible for staying sober. I am responsible for being available. Uh, I am responsible for you know reaching out to the newcomers and 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 having a commitment at my meeting. But really, this is not my dream. I'm happy with it. But my dream was success, you know, was was money, was fame, was all those things. And today I have my higher powers dream. And my job, that realization is that I'm just here to take care of this dream. I'm just here to do the work that I was given to do. And I enjoy it. I love it. Um, because I love, I love a lot of things. I know that I'm lucky. I know that... The path out of homelessness for me was paved mostly because I'm white and it was a long time ago and it was in Minnesota and I have a Scandinavian last name. So they all knew what to do with me. Right. And it was AA and I was a drunk. So AA works in situations like that, obviously. This. This life. I'm back to this. I don't understand. I've talked about this a couple of times, I guess. I just don't understand how this is possible. I know I did a lot of work along the way. I did what was asked of me. But the cum the cumulative effect of that work to put me where I am today, again, there's no straight line you can draw. I have been available for this adventure for a couple of weeks. It'll be 34 years. Uh, as long as I don't drink. And 
I hope for another, uh, I'm, I'm banking on another 30. Okay. <laughs> so I need another 30 to kind of, kind of clear things up um, or get some other stuff done at least. And if you're new in this program, it works. I was a dead man. I was forgotten about. Nobody knew. Nobody expected me to make it. You know, the best, the best professional advice in my early sobriety was that I was going to die drunk. And here I'm living sober. And this is a marvelous life. Thank you for listening. I know it's been kind of a long, meandering talk, um, but thank you. Thank you, Paul, for your story. <laughs> thank you. It was great. I am surprised when I still learn new stuff. And what's really highlighted in my mind right now is this, what meetings were like at the height of HIV and the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. So there were gay only meetings. Are there still gay meetings today? There are. Uh, I don't attend them. And maybe I'm wandering into something I, I oughtn't get into, but the I think that separating ourselves in AA is against the principles of AA. And so I don't attend meetings where you have to be something besides an alcoholic. Um, that division, we're divided enough and we uh, part of the diseases that we think we're special and that our needs you know, are unique. And I stand with the fact that AA is for all of us and works just as well, you know, regardless. But yes, there are still uh, gay meetings. And I hear what you're saying. And I think once we, we know what you just said is true in the rooms of AA, then it you can digest it heart and mind. But for somebody who maybe grew up in the Midwest, who's that 17-year-old gay kid that's never told anybody to have the option of a gay meeting where you know for sure you have that in common. You're not sure you're an alcoholic, but you have. So I can, I can see where there's the value of having those meetings, especially for the, the gay newcomer. Yes, and it's a great point, and it's the point that all my friends who still go to gay meetings talk about. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I get it. For me, I had to, um, I wanted the best sobriety, and I found the people who were doing what I needed to do or, or who were living the lives I wanted to live and, and, and stop separating myself from the center of, of society. My sponsor was really clear early on when he didn't care that I was gay, uh, uh, which was a relief to me. He's from California. So that really helped. I just you know, lived here for many years. So, and the kid Clancy is a sponsor. So he was a little, he had been exposed to life. He had lived a life, right? But um, he said, you're not here to hide in AA. You're here to go out and and uh, live your life and be in the center of society and not draw attention to yourself. Not just go out there and be a worker among workers. And I prized that above everything else was the ability to go. You know, it says in the, I think it's Ebby's story. We got sober and it says, that he was able to go anywhere that other people could go as long as he was willing to, you know, have a certain spiritual uh, approach or mindset or something like that. And that was my dream. 
right? I was terrified of going places and and seeing people I owed money to or seeing people I, you know, owed apologies to. And to be free to travel the world, I put that above everything else as, as part of the dream uh, in my sobriety and that I am I'm absolutely unfettered by feeling different than people other people and i can go anywhere and fit in anywhere and yes i understand that gay meetings are are essential maybe even for new people who are who are coming in but i don't think they're essential for sobriety uh and um i also wanted to say my sponsor wouldn't tell me what he did for work uh, I don't know exactly how I'm going to this from your question, but my sponsor wouldn't tell me what he did for a job for the first four years he sponsored me. He said it has nothing to do with our relationship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he kept that division and he kept it like clear. Uh, and I had no idea until I went to hear him speak at a conference where he spoke at length, right? He had invented a computer that I used at work. Hmm. He, he uh, was the youngest vice president of research for his company in history. He left that company to go and found another computer company. And he was living in Minnesota as the general manager of the largest supercomputer company in the state. And he rented his furniture. He drove an old Ford LTD, navy blue with blue vinyl interior. He wore a Timex watch polyester blend suits he really lived that i'm you know i am an alcoholic among alcoholics a worker among workers and i still hold that as the the highest goal i can have sounds like humility exactly living it not just talking about right. it but living it i think to sum up our agree to disagree on the whole gay meeting not gay meeting thing it reminds me of that first meeting you went to where there's broken recliners and bus seats and yellow fingers and old men and the story. And then you now go to a, your home group is a men's meeting, which, you know, you all have penises. So you all have something in common. So to sum up this whole notion for the newcomer that may be like, well, I would rather go to a gay meeting or I'm African-American. I want to go to a black meeting. I think yeah. it's just about finding the group of people that work for you. And if you end up in a room with old recliners and bus seats and old men, like, I'm not feeling it. It's kind of like a horror movie in here with the light in the middle of the room. You're a very good story detailed teller. You can just find another one because there is an endless number of meetings out there and you got to find your tribe within the tribe. I, I agreed. I, I, um, I uh, agreed. I tended to, uh, I'm sorry that I take this personal uh, thing to be, be a directive for anybody else, or if, if it seems that way, it's just that I have, I have defended it so many times uh, that I maybe get a little too strident about it, but I really did. I really did find my tribe and they were happy, joyful, sober men. And, and we would at a men's meeting is where I first felt like I was a man. You know, so I know what it's like to go to a men's meeting. I was was always, I had no idea what men acted like because they could goof around and have fun with each other and do all of these things that I would have taken as being like sexual stuff, right? 
was not. They're just being guys with each other. And, uh, you know, so, so I never knew what those, I had to learn. I had a lot to learn. And then how to learn to, to uh, respect women and really pay attention to the humanity of everyone. First, I could tell you, oh my God, a story about the very first trans person who joined our meeting. And that was such a, it was such a, a revelation. Again, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. May, do you mind if I go on, tell the story a little bit more? I was wondering how that's going to work. So I <laughs> absolutely want to hear this. Okay. So we started this group, the Central Pacific Group, based on the Pacific Group, actually, you know, in, a, in LA. But we ended up growing very fast, about 400 people a week. And I was the token gay. I really was. People would wander in every once in a while, but not really. They wouldn't stay around. I was the token gay. I, I kind of kind of took on this mantle of representing, right? And one night, this woman shows up, and she is maybe 6'3", six, 6'4", six, in her, let's say in her 60s, maybe 70s, wearing a, a red and white leatherette cowgirl outfit with fringe on the sleeves and skirt above the knee and cowboy boots and lipstick that had been like if you took two fingers and put it in the lipstick and then smeared it at like a 30 degree angle across your lips lipstick like this and glasses kind of askew and a wig and a red cowboy hat and she came into the room and she was loud and boisterous and she she was totally okay with who she was and i was totally terrified I'm like, she's going to break this meeting. They're not ready for this. They're not going to be able to do this. You know, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I just was kind of beside myself, sat down. There she is sitting, just towering above everybody, you know, with this red cowboy hat on. And the leader calls her up. And she gets up to the podium and she delivers one of the most Deeply insightful, beautiful conceptions of sobriety that any of us had ever heard. She'd been around, you know, been sober for a couple of years. She, she had lived her life uh, as a man until was a grandfather and then transitioned to being a woman and all the, you know, and, and, and everybody in the room immediately fell in love with her. And I was shocked that people are able to change so quickly and to embrace differences so aptly, right? So, so I mean, there was no, there was no muttering, there was no murmuring, there was just this beautiful acceptance of this woman into the meeting, and she became a fixture at our meetings. Uh, because she was welcome there, and I, th I you know, and I, I've seen Alcoholics Anonymous as a, as a, like a whole, do amazing things, you know, move forward as a, as a spiritual, or I don't know, you know, I'm, anyway. but I have seen them great 
leaps of acceptance and love and understanding in the face of adversity. Uh, just uh, this is maybe not a great analogy, but let's just talk about how everybody moved to online meetings so quickly and easily. And now hybrid and online meetings are a standard, right? We just mm -hmm. boom, moved. The message is carried as well over Zoom as it is sitting next to a person. And we discovered that and have embraced it. And it has given our fellowship uh, a reach and uh, a sense of worldliness that we may never have had an opportunity to do. Because I can attend meetings anywhere in the world. I see the guys I used to sponsor in Amsterdam. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe it just creates in us this sense of acceptance and love and, and embracing. And then we move forward as a, as a whole community. I don't understand it. Again, I don't understand it. I see this just amazing ability for transformation. And it gives me hope. And I wanted to go back to those guys in that room in my first meeting. I went back to that room several times in my sobriety. And every first time I went back, it actually was my, my mom had passed away. And I, I went back, did the funeral, went to a couple meetings. That first night back, they all remembered me. This was 13 years later. They were it seemed like the same guys were still there. I don't know how, you know, they were ageless, but uh, they were all still there. They were happy to see me. They wanted to know what's going on. We talked and I became friends with all of them. I mean, they were, I told them about that. You know, I walked away and I never went to a meeting again. And, and they all laughed because, you know, it, they just laughed. They didn't take it personally. And they, and they wanted to know about my sobriety and about my life. And so I had a chance to go back and, and have a different opinion of even in myself, be able to accept that change and embrace the difference in something. And I think that's just, uh, it's a miraculous part of what this program does. I love how you looped it back to those guys in the recliners. And All right. So final question, Paul, what do you want to say to the alcoholic that's listening now still out there suffering? No matter no matter what you think makes you different or special, no matter what trauma you have endured, no matter what pain and fear keeps you from us. This is the place for you. This is the place to heal. Alcoholics Anonymous is for everyone. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.